Thank you, Reverend Brander. Thank you, Dina and Oscar. Um, I had fully intended to tell a couple of stories. I realized if I try, I'm going to lose it. So perhaps at the end. I'm so moved, Dina, by the fact that you are requesting that this learning be a schut so that all of our young and old, healthy and infirm, all, everybody come home safely to their family. Our eldest is still serving near Janine and should be released soon to come back to Shalayim. We want all of his chayalim and chayalot comrades to come home safely and for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to give us a decisive and absolute eradication of the evil that we unfortunately have on our border. It, th- this is the beginning of the week of Parashat Bo. So, to talk about something in Parashat Bo, uh, everything you look at is just a gold mine. But we're here to honor the memory of two young men, two sons. And Parashat Bo is the Parashat of sons. So the timing was perfect. It's not the parsha of sons, it's the parsha of parents and sons. It's parsha of teaching. And I'd like to explore with you over the course of the next uh, 40 minutes or so what is undoubtedly one of the best-known midrashim in our literature, commonly known as the midrash arba'a banim, the midrash of the four sons. You all recognize the four sons? Everybody smile, raise your hand. Put up a four, whatever, good, okay, gotcha. But I'd like to look at that Midrash top down and not bottom up. I'll explain what I mean. Typically, we engage that Midrash, not this week. We engage that Midrash not in the summer, when there would also be a good reason to do so, but rather at the Seder. And we engage the Midrash as a Midrashic text, and then we look at it and try to take it apart. But we have to remember that the composers of that Midrash, sometime between perhaps the second century and maybe even earlier than that, didn't start with the Midrash, they started with the Torah. So let's look at the Midrash through their eyes and see what develops, how it develops, and more critically perhaps, why it develops. We have a basic premise, an assumption about the text of the Torah. And it is that whereas in prophetic and poetic and narrative sections of the Torah, you may occasionally find an embellishment and even a repetition, when it comes to legal texts, the Torah is succinct, concise, and very economic when it comes to language. And any extra word, an unusual word, even sometimes an odd letter being added in, is seen as a signal that there's something more to get out of this verse that is obviously there. And we dig. 
and we have tools to dig with, and those are the tools of Midrash. We open up in this week's parasha, in source one on the page, and find that after Hashem commands Moshe and Aharon regarding the Korban Pesach, the first set of laws that this nation gets, subsequently Moshe parlays that information to B'nai Israel, to the elders, and describes certain components that are not written in the earlier section. And then we're told the following. You see the big section, even the not, the not highlighted section. And you see the English underneath. And now for the highlighted section. When your sons say to you, what is this avodah? Now what does the word avodah mean? To us it means work, labor. But in the context of this passage, it means worship. In the immediate previous pasuk, the korban Pesach is called an avodah. So the child says, Maha avodah hazot lachem. Now, let's for a minute do something very difficult. Let's erase everything we know. And just look at that pasuk. Is there anything unseemly, anything inappropriate about that question? What do you think? Right. There's nothing wrong with it. I, the father, am having the family engage in this service. And the son asks me, what does this worship mean to you? Why are you doing it? Totally legit. And now what are we told to answer the child? Vamartem. Zebach Pesach We're supposed to give the correct answer. What is the Korban Pesach? It is an offering of passing over, or protection, depending how you read the word Pesach. That God either passed over or protected the Jewish homes when he, you know, when he killed the firstborn of the Egyptians. That's the, that's the message. Question, answer. It's very straightforward. We really don't have any reason to not like this interaction or to regard the child as anything less than what we all want, which is a curious, inquisitive child. And the father's given instructions on how to answer. But here's where things get a little bit naughty. K-N-O-T-T-Y. Because again, the Torah does not repeat unnecessarily legal directions. And yet, when you look at the very next chapter in Source 2, and we're told that when we come to the land, we're going to do this worship, and we're going to get rid of chametz, and we're going to eat matzah, and then in Pasuk Chet, you see it highlighted, Tell your child on that day. This is why Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim. Now, the truth is, if this is all we had, we wouldn't be so bothered. Because the two contexts are different, and the two pieces of information are different. Because one of them is focused on a particular element of the worship or of the service, and the other is a general statement. One of them is provoked and initiated by a question, and the other is not. So say, okay, very good. 
And at that point, I'd still be comfortable. But in the very next passage, we're told that when we come to the land, which, by the way, from the perspective of this parasha, is supposed to happen when? As we say in Japanese, ot, ot, ot. You didn't know I knew Japanese. I'm a Dodger fan. i got to learn Japanese now. Ot, ot, ot. Immediately. Should be getting in the land immediately. By next year, we'll be in the land. And now what's going to happen? You're going to come to the land and you're going to take all of your firstborn animals and dedicate them to Hashem and your firstborn sons you're going to redeem. And then, And then your kid turns around and says, Every kid in the Torah speaks Yiddish. What is this? And what do you answer? God took us out with a strong hand, and Paro was stubborn, and because Paro was stubborn, God killed the firstborn, and therefore I'm offering my firstborn to God. And by this point, we're starting to get antsy. Because it seems that the Torah is now directing us, and in retrospect three different times, to do the same thing, which is tell your child about the Exodus. The reason that at this point I get antsy is because this is again a child asking a question, and asking a question relating to an offering. And there doesn't seem to be anything new except the particular context. But the Torah could have said it much easier, which is, there was a mitzvah to teach your children about the Exodus. The second source would have, would have covered it all. And now I'm starting to wonder, and I meaning the guys of the rabbis who are the composers of the Midrash, why is the Torah telling it these three times? But we're not done. You turn the page and you look at the fourth source, and this is why I mentioned that we might want to engage in the summer in this study. Because the fourth source is from Parashat Va'etchanan. The parasha we read immediately after Tisha B'Av. And here, Ki yishalcha v'incha machar le'mor ma ha'idod v'achukim v'amishpatim asher tziva Adonai v'hinu etchem. Your child will ask you, in the future, what are all the laws, statutes, specific kind of laws that Hashem commanded you? Hashem, our God, commanded you. And now, you would expect that the Torah, that Moshe would tell the father, there's a Sefer Dvarim, Moshe would tell the father, and here's what you tell him. Start for the first Siman in Shulchan Aruch. Okay, Moshe's not going to say that. But teach him the Halachot. Start, if you will, with Achodesh Hazalachem. Start with Tefillin. And we are surprised, and if you think about it, blown away, by the fact that the Torah tells the father to answer the question, to not answer the question. What does the child ask? What are the laws? What are we told to tell him? Child asks for the laws, and we're told to tell him a story. But by now, our hackles are really up. Because this is now the fourth time that the Torah is directing us to teach our children about the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And so at that point, Chachamim look at this and say, there must be something else cooking under the surface. 
true, you could make the argument that each one of these interactions happens in a different context. The first interaction happens on Erev Pesach, when they're coming to bring the offering. The second one happens at the Seder, Ba'avur Zeh, you're pointing to the Matzah. The third one happens sometime probably in the fall when you're bringing your firstborn goat to the Kohen. Parenthetically, goats typically mate in the spring and have five-month gestation. That's why I said the fall. And the last one could happen any time of year when a child turns and says, please teach me all the halachot. So you could make that argument that each one is about a different context, but then we come back to the same premise. A verbal economy. And the Torah should have one time said, teach your child about Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And therefore we come to the conclusion that the Torah is teaching us something far more profound, far broader, far more impactful, and about way more than you see at Mitzrayim with these four passages. Take a look, please, at the last page, page three, because this is where it all gets started. Now, we're going to take a look at a text that will look very familiar until it doesn't. The Midrash Chachamim, the Midrash Tanaim, from the rabbis that you may be familiar with from the Mishnah. The collection of their Midrashim on the book of Shemot is called the Mechilta. It's actually two versions of it. There's the Mechilta of Rabbi Ishmael and the Mechilta of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. The standard one is the Mechilta of the Rabbi Ishmael. We don't even have all of the Mechilta of the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. It was actually discovered 120 years ago. But the Mechilta that we have. Now just an aside, and just for fun I put in that little picture. I want to talk for a moment about, because it's so much about education, about the phrase that we use when describing all of this literature. All of the literature that you're looking on at page 3 is called Torah Shebaal Peh, oral tradition. We have a problem because there's a page 3. It's very hard to call this text an oral tradition because it's written. So what does it mean to call it a Torah Shebaal Peh? What does that phrase mean if it's all written down? Again, what? Anybody? If you want to say it orally, go ahead. It's a recording of what was said. It was a recording of what was said. So is the Torah, the B'Shivich is a recording of what was said. You're close. Let's keep going. What makes something Torah Shabal Peh? So it was originally designed, and this might probably what you meant, it was originally designed to be transmitted orally. The Torah was originally given to be written. Torah Shabichtav. Torah was originally designed. This Midrash you're looking about was never supposed to be written down. It was supposed to be communicated orally. By the way, what's the difference between an oral communication and a written communication? We think in our literate society, and that's not a judgment call, we think that a written communication is far more secure, far more reliable. And news for you. In the Yeshivot in Bavel in the 9th century, when they were starting to write down the Gemara, the Gaonim, the heads of the Yeshivot, preferred and were more ready to rely on the oral tradition than on the written version. 
Because when it's written, people copy it and they make mistakes. The oral tradition is a whole group studying together and they review together and they make sure that if anybody made a mistake, he corrects it. That, of course, has changed. But these were all texts that were intended to be transmitted orally. Now, an oral tradition means a connection. It means people who are in proximity with each other, in dialogue with each other. And the dialogue, not monologue, the dialogue is, okay, repeat. Let's go over it. Let's make sure you got it. A far cry from being able to study via Zoom in Juno with somebody giving shear in Singapore. A far cry. And a far cry from our ability to read books written by people that we never will meet, never did meet, and never could meet. So you're looking at Torah Shabal Peh, and yet it's written down. So what happened is over time, there was a realization that because of various factors, there was a need for us to commit this material to writing. But of course, that was well before the 15th century. And so we have a treasure trove of manuscripts, handwritten texts, of the most central texts of Torah Shabal Peh of the Mishnah, of the Gemara, of the Yerushalmi, I'm going to show you that in a second, and of this Midrash. So I'm showing you, and you can see, this one is a manuscript that's held in the Bodleian Museum in, uh, in London. That was an aside just for fun. And now you get the picture. But let's take a look at the text itself. Well, what's kind of surprising is this is the Pasuk in Dvarim has been quoted in the Midrash in Shemot. Your conclusion is that there are four sons. What conclusion from what? From what we just worked through. The fact that the Torah gives us four different interactions between father and son, between parent and child, tells us that there's four sons. Now, there are not four sons. You can quote me. There are not four sons. But it's as if there are four sons. The Torah is describing models, paradigms. Now, watch the names and raise your hand when you hear something that sounds a little bit strange. Echad Chacham. So far, so good? Okay. Echad Tipesh. Okay, your hands all went up. Okay, good. We're going to get back to the Tipesh. He deserves a little attention. Echad Rasha. By the way, he's my favorite. I always wanted to be the Rashad Seder. Ve'achad, and my parents were very happy to oblige. Ve'achad, she'no Okay, what are these four kids called? Chacham, which means? What's Tipesh? The opposite, right? And then we've got a Rasha. And then? She'no If you would group these four into two pairs, how would you group them? Chacham. Tipesh. Okay? Is that good? And that's a cognitive statement. This one has the ability, this one doesn't get it. And what's the other two? Rasha and Shainu That's kind of strange. What would you say the opposite of Rasha would be? Sadiq. This guy's evil, this guy's wonderful. Instead, Rasha, and the opposite one seems to be. So I heard once a great observation about this. That maybe we're not even reading the Sheinu Yodei accurately. We translate Sheinu Yodei as the kid who's so what, young, immature, what? 
So he said what? Can't ask, because he can't get formulate a question. He can't even say, I don't get it, because he doesn't get anything. And so we have to get him started. Heard what's a great observation. The Rasha is the one who challenges everything. The Shenyo Daily Shoal doesn't challenge anything. He doesn't ask. It's not that he doesn't get it. He accepts it all blindly. Ain't no your daily show. He has no way. He doesn't know. Even him, you got to engage. Interesting. It's not the simple read of it, but something to look at. We're going to come back to the Tipesh, but let's start in order. Chacham Mahu Omer. Now, we quote the Pasuk in Vayat Because what we've done is we've looked at these four interactions... And we have now determined that each of these interactions represents an interaction between a different sort of child and the father. And the Torah is directing the father how to respond to that interaction, to that question or lack of question. And looking at all four of them, we've determined that the kid in Sefer Dvarim, in the last source, that kid is a Chacham. What makes that kid a Chacham? Look back at page two and tell me. What makes that kid a Chacham? So what's the nature of his question? What does he ask? What are the laws? So Soloveitchik explains that what he what he did is he also categorized laws. So I recognize that there are some laws that are testimonies, like Shabbat. There's some laws that are chukim, like kilayim. There's some laws that are mishpatim, like all of the court juridical things. And that awareness that there's a distinction, and not all the laws are just one big mess but that there's a distinction, a categorization, helps define the kid as a chacham. Okay, we'll call him a chacham. But now things get strange-er. Because in this midrash, they always have to be strange-er, and maybe even strange-est. We'll get to that. What are you supposed to tell this kid in the Torah? What does Moshe Rabbeinu say we should answer the kid who says, Look back at source 4 on the, on the previous page, on page 2. What are we told to tell him? Source three, sorry. What does t- what does Moshe Rabbeinu tell us when your kid says, "What are all these laws? What are you supposed to answer?" Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim, and I'm not answering your question. I'm telling your story instead. Okay. What does the Haggad, this midrash tell us to do? Turn back to source four. Af atah now, I know you came for a year. You're ready to learn a little Greek. Because you can't do the Seder without Greek. You introduce to him the laws of Pesach, which means, by the way, the Torah says, here's the answer you give. And the rabbis say, we got a different one. That's pretty chutzpahdik. We're going to come to that when we wrap it all together. And what is it, the laws of Pesach, that you're supposed to teach? It's Chacham. What does that mean? The Pesach, which means the Korban Pesach. It happens to be the second to last Mishnah in the whole book of Pesachim in the Mishnah. What is Afikoman? How do you translate the word Afikoman? So I gave it to you in the original, Afikoman. What does it mean? Yeah, yeah, it actually doesn't. Epikoman, it was a custom in Greek meals, Greek festive meals, 
that when they would finish the meal, they would then go and carouse in the streets and go into other homes, sometimes uninvited, to continue their festivities. And therefore, the, the, the law has to state that Korban Pesach, you have to stay with the same Chavura. You have to stay with your group till the end of the evening. And you don't go house to house. It's not a progressive meal. It stays in one place. You have to teach that to the Chacham. Hey, strange. What happened to the story? The Torah says, tell him the story. Not the story. We got a, we got a particular halacha with a Greek word in it we're going to teach him. I want the kid to learn some Greek. I will come back to it. Tipesh. By the way, what happens to Tipesh at our Seder? Okay, okay. We see him. Yeah, it's a little nicer. We'll call him Tom. By the way, he won't get it anyways. It's okay. Now, more mazot. What does this kid say? Mazot. And what's the answer? In other words, that's straight up from the Torah. The Torah, the kid says mazot, and the answer is Hashem took us out with a strong arm. Parenthetically, the Torah says a longer answer, which is Hashem took us out with a strong arm, and when Paro was, was obstinate, Hashem killed the, the firstborn, and therefore we're offering the firstborn. We give him the first part of that answer. Now we come to, the, to our favorite kid. So, so yeah. I would have loved to say that. What's your name? Stephen. Stephen. Stephen has a great question. If you take a look at it, it's very possible that the Torah is saying, etc., etc. The only problem is in all the different texts we have in this Midrash, it stops there. So it gives me the sense that really it's given the short answer. But could be. And by the way, as we will see, of course, there is no set answer. It really depends on that particular kid and the context and the way it's asked and everything else. It's a good point. Rasha, <laughs> Omer, Now, this is, and this guy is the most interesting kid of all. Why do we think this kid is a Rasha? I understand why we think that kid's a Tipej, because all he can say is, huh, mazot. He can't even articulate what's bothering him. But a Rasha, what, what made that kid a Rasha? So please look back at the first source. I want you to see two things going on in that source which alone would have told us nothing. But remember, we're looking at the whole matrix of all four interactions as described in the Torah. We're looking at them as an interactive map. Now, what does, how does the Torah describe that first interaction from the kid's perspective? What's the verb used? Vayaki yomru aleichem b'neichem. What does the word lomar mean, lemor? To say. So when your kid says to you, now by the way, how would you punctuate, if you had punctuation, how would you punctuate after the word lachem? Mahavodahazot lachem. How would you punctuate it? So all of our Haggadot have a question mark. But think about it. What's the verb driving this? It's not ask, it's say. Now, if all I had was source one, or if all I had was source one and the next one, the beginning of two, I would say maybe that's the way the Torah describes a child asking a question, use the word Omer. But now look at the rest of source two and source three, and what verb is used for the child's asking? Shoel. Vayaki shalchavincha. 
And suddenly I see that the proper word to use when describing a child's question of a, fa- of a parent is shoel, the word we use in Hebrew for ask. Now with that knowledge in hand, I look back at the first source and I say, Vos Redsted, what is this kid doing? And by the way, followed by a question word, which is ma. What do we call a question that's a statement? A rhetorical question, like that one. A rhetorical question. Now, by the way, in what interaction is a rhetorical question appropriate? An interaction between a superior and an inferior. Sorry to put it that way. It is appropriate for a parent, you're all, I'm mandating you. A parent, it's appropriate for a parent, even a grandparent, to come into the room and say, you call that a clean room? But is it appropriate for a child to come up to his mother and say, you call that dinner? <laughs> of course not. A rhetorical question is, is appropriate from, from the authority position. And now we see, here's the kid saying to his father, but asking, but saying. And right away we get a sense of where this kid's coming from, and right away we know that everything he's saying is dripping with sarcasm and cynicism. And so we start taking apart his words. Lachem, we're going to see that. But there's another clue. How does the Torah tell us to answer that kid, the Rasha? What's the word used in the Torah? Right after the highlight. What's the word? Va'amartem. Now, the word Omer, the verb Omer, in Hebrew, in biblical Hebrew certainly, always is followed by a preposition linking it to the one you're speaking to. Vaydaber Adonai el Moshe lemor. Vayomer Moshe el Aharon. Vayomer Moshe el Paro. El, two. Le, two. And by the way, in the other interactions, what does it say? Vihigarata levincha. Vyamarta levincha. Vyamarta elav. To him. Now take a look at the interaction. The first interaction, what's the father told to do? Va'amartem. No preposition. You don't talk to him. You make a declaration that he's sure to hear, but you don't address him. Watch how that all comes together. Take a look in the Midrash on page 3. And again, we hear everything he's saying is just filled with cynicism. Now we determine that this kid actually has removed himself from the group. Because he's said, what word? What does this mean to you? Instead of it being an innocent, honest question, it suddenly becomes an attack. And therefore we see him as taking himself out of the group. What should you do? You take him out of the group. And now the Midrash borrows from the next interaction, liberally. This is what Hashem did for me. Me and not... You. If you were there, you never would have been redeemed. It's a phenomenal statement. 
Very powerful. Where's the Midrash getting it from? I think the Midrash is getting it from Va'amartem. Because the verse says, declare, but don't tell him. Make a declaration that he's sure to hear, but don't address him. Make him feel like he's out. Make him understand the implication of making this lachem separation. You don't want to be part of it? Guess what? You're not part of it. Had you been there, you probably would have been hanging out with your Egyptian girlfriend in her house and gotten killed. Instead of in our house, protected. The lesson. The easiest one is Shein Neodayali Shol, because there's one interaction where the child doesn't ask. It's initiated by the father. Ad Patach Lo, etc. You introduce it. What we've seen in this is a very familiar Midrash, but hopefully we've taken it apart in a way that's new, in a way that demonstrates how the rabbis got to their conclusion. And you see that this Midrash is a familiar one, and yet not so familiar. We suddenly have a Tipesh instead of a Tam, and the order is, is different. This next piece needs a little bit of an introduction. <clears throat> what is, and you're going to be surprised that we're talking about this in Shul, but what is the most significant holiday to a religious Christian? Easter. 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 I have friends who are devout Christians, don't celebrate Christmas at all. They're scandalized by what's happened to it in the last hundred years, and, uh, but Easter, from a, from a holiday. Okay, by the way, when, when, what's Easter called in, in Latin? Anybody know? It's called Pascha. Pascha. Um, when was Easter originally? What was the date of Easter originally? 14th of Nisan at night. Okay, and you said that? No, I just said 30 CE. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Probably much, much later, but, um, but yeah, but the 14th of Nisan, at night. And by the way, it was a festive meal served with a roast lamb, unleavened bread, and bitter herbs. And each one of them had an explanation. I'm not going to say it in shul. You can look it up. That was the single most important holiday. Matter of fact, there was a big fight in the church when the church wanted to divest itself of its Jewish parentage and they moved it to, get ready, the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox, which is Cholomoy Pesach, but in order for not to be there, and there was a group that maintained for at least 100 years celebrating Easter on the 14th of Nisan at night. They were called the Quarto Decimans, and they were excommunicated by the church. It's a big thing. They also have problems. I mention that because the Seder became a point of tremendous interaction and not pleasant interaction between Jews and Christians. That's my introduction to this passage. The Talmud Yerushalmi, by the way, our passage, the four sons does not show up in the Babylonian Talmud, but in the Jerusalem Talmud or the Palestinian Talmud, as we proudly call it, because we are the Palestinians. Let's be honest. My grandfather, by the way, was born, sixth generation Palestinian, in Me'asharim. Um, has the following passage. Amravchia, and here's the word that we, we use in our Haggadah, keneged arba'abanim dibra Torah. The Torah speaks as if there's four sons. Echad ben chacham, ben rasha, ben tipesh, so the order is more familiar, but the tipesh is still there, and ben shenodei elishol. 
Chacham, ma hu omer. What you have on the left-hand side is a picture of the only extant manuscript we have of the Talmud Yerushalmi. As again, there for just entertainment, for fun, it's the Leiden manuscript. Ben Chacham, ma hu omer. Ma ha'edod v'chukim v'yishpatim asher tzivah. Get ready for this. Adonai Eloheinu. What's the next word? Otanu. Problem is, if you open up a Sefer Torah, you'll see what it says. It says, Etchem. <laughs> what happened here? The Talmud Yerushalmi doesn't know the Torah? Quote the Torah and says, Otanu? It's very strange. It's a famous question that everybody asks the Seder. Why do we get so angry at the Rasha for saying Lachem? Lachem And yet the Chacham, who we love, who we adore, says, Hashetzivah Hashem Elokeinu Etchem. So an answer I once heard, it was very quick, was that the Rasha, of course, went to university, and the Rasha knows Ivrit, and when he says Lachem, he means Lachem, and the Chacham said, he, in Koilo, he doesn't know Lachem, Laosanu, Eschem, well, he doesn't know. That, of course, doesn't wash, it's cute, but it doesn't wash. But it could be that the Rishami is sensitive to that, and deliberately puts in the word Otanu there, to avoid that problem, to have this kid be fully inclusive. What's interesting is, if you look at the bottom of the previous page, you'll see that in the Greek translation of the Torah, the Septuagint, this verse is actually rendered, Asher Hashem Otanu. What did Hashem command us, not you? An interesting little piece. But nonetheless, what are we told to tell this kid? Remember, what, did, what does the Torah say to tell this kid? Tell him a story. What did the, the Midrash tell the tell its kid? Don't do Afikoman. Right? Watch this. Suddenly we're getting the answer that the Tipesh had to the Chacham. Hashem took us out with a strong hand. Finished. And now Rasha. Rasha is the best guy. Rasha Ma'omer. Ma'avodazot Lachem. By the way, the Word lachem is, of course, the big, the big lightning rod for the rasha. But there's another word that we pick up on. Remember, I asked you at the beginning what avodah means. I said avodah in this context means worship. Watch what the Yerushalmi does with this. What is this pain, this work, this labor that you make us do every year? Now, to us, it sounds like. Okay, the Rasha is lazy, he doesn't want to do this. It's important to note that one of the flashpoints of challenge between the early church and us was Korbanot. Was Korbanot. And whereas we understood the Bebet HaMikdash as being our central institution and prayed for its immediate rebuilding, from their perspective, it was a rejection not only of us was a rejection of that kind of worship. You hear that in this, this kid's voice? Get ready, you're going to hear his voice more. <clears throat> he took himself out of the group. Now, here is a way of saying, he did it for me, but not for that guy, that guy being that Rasha kid. Maybe. Had that guy been in Egypt, he never would have gotten out, ever. You know, that brother of yours, that Rashakit. But there's something else cooking underneath this, cooking underneath this, uh, this text. 
one of the many stories that the early church had about Jesus was that when Herod Antipater put out a decree that all children born should be killed, whether there were ever such a decree, I don't know, but it's, of course, patterned on the story of Paro, that the parents, the real parents, and, and the baby ran away to Egypt. They ran away to Egypt. And when the news came that he had died and the decree had been lifted, they were able to come to fulfill that which it says in the prophets. From Egypt I have summoned forth my son. Watch what the Midrash says. You know who Otohaish is in, in rabbinic literature? It's Jesus. Liasa, God took me out. Lotohaish Loasa, he didn't take him out. If he were ever there, he never would have gotten out. Do you understand how this is a pointed shot? Because again, Judaism and early Christianity are intersecting at the Seder and fighting at the Seder. And this is part of that battle. And then we get to the Ben Shendoyo de Elishol, Atachlob Tchila. And now we get to the text that we're all familiar with, which is introduced because now it is not a learning text. It is also what we might call a prayerful text. Because the Seder, the Haggadah, is a combination of a learning and praising. And therefore we bounce back and forth. We talk about Brit ben Abatarim, and then we say, We talk about and history and song together. So in the Haggadah, several things change from this earlier form of the Midrash that we just studied. First of all, it's introduced with a prayer. Baruch HaMakom Baruch Hu. Some people argue it's sort of a mini Birchat HaTorah at the evening. And suddenly, because it's not nice at the Seder to talk about a tipesh. Tam, simple. And then we have it much more in a much more filled kind of text. And again, I'm going to come back to that question I asked at the beginning, which is the Chacham asks a question, what are the laws? And the answer we're supposed to give in the Torah is the story. It's very unsatisfying. In the meantime, here we go back to the Mechilta, which you teach the child the laws, perhaps up to and including the law of the Afikoman. Um, the Rasha, we're all familiar with, set his teeth on edge. Had he been there, he wouldn't have been redeemed. The Tam, Mazot, simple question, simple answer, and the Shaina daily show we answer. We're familiar with this, and this is a text I think we all know. But I want to come back to the Chacham, because as much as the Rasha is the most intriguing, and by the way, the Rasha is the engine that drives this whole Midrash. Because it's the Rasha, with not only is the first interaction, but it's the Rasha who uses Vayakiyomru. And suddenly we sense a rhetorical question, and it's inappropriate. And we're told in our answer to him not to talk to him directly, to talk past him. And suddenly we get a sense of emotion behind the intellectual interaction a program behind the, behind the lesson. But the Chacham, and the question that I've asked before, the Torah, he asks a question, tell me what the laws are, and we're supposed to tell him a story. 
So I'll illustrate it by way of a story. And I think that this statement to the Chacham is, is most instructive, and then we're going to put the whole thing together in a picture. Many years ago, uh, there, we had a, um, a tradition over the last few weeks before Rosh Hashanah to have a huge uh, learning session on the two Sundays before Rosh Hashanah. And I was one of the speakers. I'd usually speak about ideas like the shofar and Tanakh, things of that sort. And there would always be one talk from, let's say, 9 to 10 uh, that was more of a halachic thing, the halachot of you know, how many sounds of the shofar you have to hear and how long it has to be, etc., then there'd be a break, which is the most important part because of Danish. And then from 10.15 to 11.15, there'd be the other talk on something like the idea of Mashiach and the Shofar, something more in the area of what we might call Mashevet, Jewish thought. It's interesting because there was one crowd would come in for the halachic thing, and these were people who were devoted to getting the halacha, and they'd all meet, everybody would meet at the Danish, of course, but then at 10.15, most of them would pack out, and the other group that had come in was there because they were more interested in the ideas. People are drawn to different things. But an interesting thing happened. I have a colleague who is a brilliant uh, halachist, and he would get up and speak about, for instance, the length of a tkiah, and people were sitting there writing down, saying, what, did you say 2.4 seconds? Like every detail they wanted to get straight. Great. And towards the end of his talk, and I watched this, towards the end of his talk, he would talk about the idea of the tekiah, what the tekiah means. And everybody go glassy-eyed. Doesn't speak to me. And of course, somebody else would get up in the second hour and speak about the idea of Mashiach and the idea of the shofar and the idea of the shofar gadol and what tekiah gadol is at the end. And then they might, in the middle, go into a little halachic excursus on how long tekiah gadol has to be and glassy-eyed. I'm here to hear the ideas. I'm going to hear the laws. I'm here to get the details of the law. I don't hear the ideas. This Chacham is a Chacham, but he's missing something. This Chacham is sitting there and saying, What are the laws? And what does the Torah tell the Father to do? Tell him why. Give him some backgrounds. Give him some context. These laws don't just come out of nowhere. These laws are part of a national story that you're part of. Hashem took us out of Mitzrayim and he brought us here to give us a great life and these laws are the laws that he gave us. Do we for one minute imagine that Moshe Rabbeinu expected the father to say, okay, let's see. At that point, of course not. And now that you got the story, let's learn. The Haggadah is not suggesting that we don't answer his question. The Haggadah is filling it in. Of course you answer the question the way the Torah said. Of course let the kid understand the story and identify with the story and realize that he is part of the history. He's part of the past and he's part of the future. And then again, of course, then you sit down and learn with him. And that's what the Haggadah fills in. We have to bring it all together. And there's a beautiful comment in the, in the Psikta, which is the Lekach Tov, an 11th century perhaps Byzantine composition, makes the following statement. And it's an observation sort of summarizing this whole Midrash of the Arba Banim. There's 
The Torah gave us a way to answer each kid according to his own ability and according to his own interest. There's different kinds of people in the world. He limits it to four because four major categories. But the reality is there are so many different kinds of categories. There's not categories. There's people. And the first responsibility that any parent has is to know their child. And know their child not as a model. Know their child on January 14th, 2024. Midday. Where's my child at? Is my child excited? Is he disappointed? Is he looking forward to sheer tomorrow in school? Or is he dreading it? And then when he asks me a question, I have to hear it with all of that information there to know how to respond. There aren't four kids. There's one kid. Your kid. I have seven kids. I had five. We had two weddings this year. Seven kids. Each one of them is a world. A world. And a world that keeps changing and shifting. And when I speak to them and I listen to them, I have to listen very carefully. Where is your world spinning right now? And how can I best love you? We're here to remember fondly and for those of you who didn't have the schut to know them, to share with you something about two remarkable young men. Two remarkable young men. Who each moment of their lives, especially over the last few years of their lives, was a remarkable, changing, dynamic person who the people who are closest to them, family and their close friends, knew how to respond to them where they were at right now. That is our mission as parents, as grandparents, as friends, as spouses, to listen, to think, and then respond lovingly. May their memories always be a source of bracha for all of us, a source of inspiration for all of us, and you know Caleb's my hero.